everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Today, our episode looks a little different. Uh, so on November 29th, my co-host Ian hosted a free forum in Denver. Free forum is a gathering of local leaders who are dedicated to motivating the next generation to live with agency and also promoting and reinvigorating the institutions of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship, all pillars of society that are essential to the well-being of young people. Free Forum arose out of the Free Initiative, which is a coalition led by Ian at AEI, which seeks to understand these topics more deeply and spark conversation with leaders around the country. As part of the forum, Ian invited me uh, to come and speak about the current state of child welfare and some of the false narratives that are plaguing it. I also discussed with Ian afterwards how the breakdown of some of these institutions is contributing to larger problems that we are seeing now in the child welfare system. So for this week's episode, we thought we'd share our conversation with all of you. So first, you'll hear me talking for a little bit and then a dialogue with Ian. Thanks so much for listening and have a happy new year. Thank you for that uh, great, great panel uh, on faith. You know, we've, we've spoken a lot uh, last night and this morning about the, the ideal state of uh, married to parent households, strong faith communities in which children uh, would be raised. But unfortunately, the ideal is not always achieved. And so this next uh, 30 minutes before lunch, I have a great opportunity. We're going to hear from Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who's going to talk about some of the systems to support children when we don't have those structures in place, um, most notably child welfare and foster care. Uh, Naomi Schaefer-Riley, she's um, my partner in many ways. Uh, we we co-host a uh, podcast called Are You Kidding Me? Uh, and in fact, this is going to be a live taping of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, but first, Naomi Schaefer-Riley, she's going to um, uh, provide some remarks, and then she and I will sit down. Um, Naomi is a senior fellow at AEI, uh, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. Uh, specifically, her work and her books analyze the role of faith-based and community organizations in changing the foster care and adoption services landscape. She also studies how race, class, and family structure affect foster care placement and services and the impact on the drug crisis on child welfare. Uh, she's concurrently a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. I'm very pleased to introduce Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for coming out today. This is just an amazing group, um, and I'm so glad that we were able to get together to talk about some of these important topics. Um, so I'm going to give you just a kind of quick overview of what the child welfare system looks like, some of the things that are plaguing it, some of the reforms that are being called for, and I think some of the misguided narratives that are surrounding it right now. Um, so there are about 3 million reports of maltreatment made to authorities every year about children. About 600,000 of those are substantiated. Um, it doesn't mean that the rest of them didn't happen. We just don't have enough evidence one way or the other. The majority of those are um, neglect cases, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, about 80% uh, of those are neglect cases, and then the rest are uh, abuse cases. Um, there are about 400,000 kids who are in the foster care system right now, um, and 
we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what, what happens to those kids um, and how the faith community is obviously helping them in a lot of ways. Um, so I want to kind of begin with sort of a couple of what I think are the major narratives around the child welfare system right now. The first is regarding neglect. There's a lot of confusion about what neglect is, um, and it's not uncommon these days to hear that neglect is poverty. Um, because we don't really understand what it is, and it's not specifically physical abuse, or it could involve physical abuse, um, but pe people don't understand it, and so they assume that it's a problem that could be solved by providing kids and families with more material supports. Um, so as Dr. Bradley was talking uh, you know, earlier about kind of the, the problem of just assuming that material supports are going to solve problems, I mean, that really is, I think, the narrative in the child welfare system, that if we could give these families uh, more in the way of either housing vouchers or food stamps or other kinds of financial aid, um, that the problems that their children are experiencing would not be the case. Um, I actually think the overwhelming reason for neglect charges have to do with drug abuse and mental illness. And if you talk to anyone who's spent a significant amount of time doing investigations or doing foster care, they're actually hard-pressed to think of a single case sometimes that does not involve substance abuse and or mental illness, which is often co-occurring, of course. Um, and some people will say, well, you know, the, the, the reason for the drug abuse um, is poverty. And again, if we could solve poverty, we could solve drug abuse. I don't actually think that's the way it works. Um, it, there's no doubt that people can be hopeless because of poverty, and that might lead them to substance abuse. Um, but it's also very possible that substance abuse is leading people both to have difficulty parenting their children and to have difficulty finding a job and keeping it and to have difficulty remaining in stable housing. The substance abuse and the mental illness are causing a lot of these problems. In the rest of our our kind of conversation about the drug abuse crisis that we're in in this country, I think we're somewhat realistic. I mean, it's amazing and unfortunate. We had 100,000 overdose deaths last year. And for those people who regularly um, meet and deal with people who have addiction problems, the idea that you could just sort of kind of prescribe a 30-day program that would kind of magically end this for them um, and allow them to parent their children well after that, I think, would be a fantasy. Um, but in the child welfare system, that's kind of how we talk about it. Well, they went to court, they filled out their form, they got their you know, prescribed program, and now they're ready to move on. Um, I don't think that's the way we should understand it. And just, I shouldn't have to say this, but like, you know, just thinking about why addiction is such a problem for parenting young children. Um, you know, I'm a mother. I'm sure a lot of you in this audience are parents. Uh, my least favorite part of parenthood is what I call the mobile but totally irrational stage, uh, when your child is about like one and a half, kind of ready to run out the front door into traffic, wants to swallow Legos, touch hot stoves, jump into bathtubs, um, all of those things which are extraordinarily uh, hard to supervise even while you are completely 100% sober. Um, so p addiction really presents an enormous problem for supervising small children and meeting their needs. And that is why most of the child maltreatment deaths in this country are actually the result of neglect, 
just want to say that again. Most of the child maltreatment deaths in this country are the result of neglect, not abuse, um, and they're with very small children, ch children under the age of three. Um, and most of them do have to do with addiction issues because that child has been left unattended, that child has not been fed, the parent has not sought proper medical care, or, and this is also neglect, the parent has left the child in the care of somebody who abused them as well. The other major narrative that I think you hear most often about the child welfare system um, is that it suffers from systemic racism. Um, it is kind of really hard to go to any child welfare conference or speak to anybody in the system right now without talking about this issue of racial disproportionality. So it is absolutely true that black children in this country are investigated, that their cases are substantiated, and that they are in the foster care system at a significantly higher rate than their white peers. Um, but I think we need to have a much fuller discussion about what that means. Black children in this country are actually twice as likely to be abused um, as their peers, and they are three times as likely to die from a child maltreatment fatality. So understanding what that means is a matter of thinking about the child welfare system, at least the frontline child welfare system, as a way of handling the risks to children. And unfortunately, one of the things that we see in this country is that the risks to black children tend to be higher. Um, I compare this for folks uh, who kind of have difficulty imagining what this means to if I were about to start a program that was doing lead abatement and I said okay everybody in Denver who has lead in their homes and this is more common in New York or some of the older cities um, who has lead paint in their home please come to me um, and the government is going to provide some subsidies to make sure that we get the lead out of your home because it's a danger to your children. Now I look at my list of people who've come to me at the end of a month and I say man, I've got a lot more black families on this list than I have white families, certainly a disproportionate number. So let me just take some of those black families off the list. I'm not going to give them that help. And that is, unfortunately, I think the way we are approaching the risks to children in this country. We are saying we don't like the disproportionality, and so we are purposefully leaving black children sometimes in their homes in cases where we would not leave white children in their homes. We are saying we are going to ignore those risks because we want to make our Excel spreadsheet columns come out even. Um, and I think that is an unacceptable way to go about child welfare policy. One of the biggest reasons, and you keep hearing about family structure this morning and last night, one of the biggest reasons that black children are unfortunately at more risk is because family structure is not distributed evenly in this country. Children who are living with a single mother and a non-relative non male, that is uh, you know, typically the mother's boyfriend, but it could also be another non-relative male, are 10 times more likely to be abused than children who are living with their two biological parents. So just let me say that again. If you're living with a child living with a single mother and a non-relative male is 10 times more likely to be abused. Black families are unfortunately more likely to be living with that family structure. And that, along with a lot of other risk factors, including poverty, explain some of the reasons we see these disparate situations in the child welfare system. So right now, I think we're having some very um, 
disturbing conversations right now in this country, both about racial disparities and also about drug abuse. More and more states in this country are not only saying we want to um, pull back from removing kids from unsafe situations because of we don't want these racial disparities in our system, um, but states are also saying uh, we don't like, we, we think substance use is not as much of a problem as, um, as it once was. We don't want to punish people unnecessarily for that. And so unfortunately, a lot of child welfare agencies and states are adopting some very dangerous policies. Uh, New Mexico, for instance, um, if you have a child born substance exposed, for the last couple of years, that state has basically been running an experiment where the parents are not reported to child welfare or anyone. They are not held accountable. Um, in fact, they are just offered some brochures and some information about rehabilitation, and then they are sent home with a newborn uh, who was born substance exposed. Um, we, the hospital workers absolutely know that the parents have an addiction problem, um, and we're not doing anything. And New Mexico has had one infant under the age of three die every month for the last two years of uh, drug ingestion, of accidental drug ingestion. Um, I think I, I was in Portland earlier this year. Um, you know, obviously many of you know Portland has, you know, is engaged in a radical legalization experiment. There are children there who are living in homeless encampments, um, and the state of Oregon has basically said, that's fine. If you call and report, and I talked to a number of homeless advocates while I was out there, if you call and report, I saw a four-year-old wandering around a homeless encampment, unattended, and you say, I think you should do a child welfare check, the agency will tell you that poverty is not a crime and there is nothing they can do. They are not doing checks on mothers living in cars with their children. They have basically taken a completely hands-off approach, and all the while um, they are, are bragging about the lower numbers of kids in foster care and how they're reducing racial disparities. So I am very concerned about the risks that we are willing to take on um, right now in terms of children who are living in these families and are clearly in danger. Um, I am hopeful about some of the work that a lot of faith-based communities have done to recruit and retain foster parents to help biological families. But frankly, if these families never come into the system, they're never given the attention that they need, say, when they have a born, baby born substance exposed, the nonprofits that are doing all this important work will never be in contact with them. We won't know that these are families at risk. I mean, yes, if you happen to be living in the same neighborhood, you can sort of, you can try to offer your services as a church. But a lot of the great work that could be done is not going to be done. And these families are going to be neglected by the community over and over again because we don't want to get involved in their lives. Thank you, Naomi. There's so much to unpack here. I mean, this is why uh, if we can... Uh, build stronger families, have educational choice, have stronger faith communities. We have less children who have to face the conditions that uh, Naomi is describing. Um, just step back for a second, though. It wasn't always thus that government um, played such a heavy, heavy hand, even 50, 60 years ago. What was, what was the child welfare system? What were the roles of faith-based organizations back then and why do you think things have so shifted 
where government's now the, the first uh, intervener in these uh, situations? Well, I mean, I think there's some good news here, which is that we become less tolerant of, you know, outright child abuse. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely more government intervention there. Um, I think you used to have, uh, and you still have this to a large extent, you know, families that are voluntarily taking in kids. You know, there are lots of families in this country, you know, where you see a family member is unable to take care of their children for one reason or another, and you step in. You're the grandparent, you're the aunt, you're the uncle, and you say, I'm, I'm going to take custody of these kids. Um, I feel like it's my duty. They're my family. Um, and, and CPS doesn't come knocking on a door then because you have preempted that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and you, you also used to have, um, you know, orphanages where kids were not necessarily sent there by a government official. Their own family might send them there. That, you know, you would have, um, there's, a, there's an economist who's at UC Irvine who's, I think, probably 80 now, and he's written a lot about his experience in an orphanage. Um, his father kind of had a drinking problem. His mother died. Um, and he and his brother, uh, a local pastor, actually recommended them for an orphanage because he didn't think that their father could take care of them. And he, you know, to this day credits that institution with him having a relatively normal childhood and being able to sort of graduate into being, you know, this amazing professor. So I think, you know, we had an entirely different understanding yeah. of what the government's role was before. How many orphanages exist today in the United States? Well, they're not, they wouldn't be called orphanages, um, and they would be very different from what he experienced, in part because you know, we would not, that, that wouldn't be a child who would be a candidate for being sent to an, an, an institution or a congregate care facility now. The kids who are, you know, who are going to congregate care facilities now are, tend to be kids who have very high behavioral and mental health needs, um, and they're sent there often after going through multiple foster homes. Um, so there are relatively few congregate care facilities in this country, and there are fewer and fewer every day which is one of the reasons why we have a lot of children sleeping in child welfare offices and hotels, because we have put an enormous amount of pressure on saying, um, you know, those it's, it, a child should never be in an institution. Um, and I, am, I believe there should be a continuum of care, and that to the extent possible, children should be with their families, then they should be with their extended families, then they should be with a non-relative foster parent, then they should be with a therapeutic foster parent, and then, if they need it, they should be in a congregate care facility where they can experience, you know, a kind of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people went to testify before Congress a few years ago and said, all congregate care facilities are evil and abusive, and we should shut them down. Wow. I mean, your, uh, the narratives that you just laid out, particularly around neglect, um, that what people aren't seeing is that a lot of this is uh, drug substance abuse. I mean, the, the, the data you just said, 100,000 overdose deaths um, per year is just staggering. Why do you think it is that there isn't this um, admission that substance abuse and drugs is at the center of so much? What, what's holding the systems back from revealing that piece of information that seems like would have a very different set of interventions if we were to acknowledge it? Well, I think we'd have to acknowledge that it's not as simple as just handing people a check. I mean, it, it, that's a, it's a much harder 
piece of work to handle someone's addiction. And it's there, we don't have a foolproof program for figuring out how to get someone free of drugs. We'd also have to acknowledge that drugs might not be the best choice for folks, which is really <laughs> hard apparently to say these days. Um, you know, I do think it's possible to say, as we do say with, you know, brain surgeons, that, you know, it's possible for adults to use drugs, but we would rather you not be a brain surgeon while using drugs. And frankly, I'd rather you not be a parent of an infant while using drugs. There are certain things that are gonna require an enormous amount of your attention and care, and we don't think it's possible to do those you know, while you're suffering from an addiction problem. Yeah, so last night, I don't see Ruth in the room, but we had a, a great conversation, and one of the concerns she had was but when we talk about these issues or talk about individuals, there's always this fear of a stigma, like somehow we're blaming the victim. What you're raising is this, this fear of de-stigma, you know, fear of stigmatizing certain behaviors is actually leading to decisions where you would not, you, you would leave a child in a situation where they're homeless or being abused. Talk about that where this, like the fear of stigmatizing is perversely worsening outcomes for kids. Right. I mean, I think what's going on in our child welfare system now is I think we're much more concerned about the feelings and the outcomes for adults than we are about the welfare of children. And so what you get is, you know, parents who go into court or they go to their child welfare agency and they say, look, I am the victim of poverty. I'm the victim of racism. I'm the victim of unemployment. I'm the victim of substance abuse. I was in foster care myself. And I think we have to acknowledge that all of those things are terrible traumas that this person has experienced. Then we have to ask ourselves, so what does that mean for how we're gonna treat this child? Does that mean that you deserve to parent this child despite the fact that you can't do so safely because you have been the victim of all of these things? No, it means that we are going to try as much as we can to offer you every kind of rehabilitation service we can, whether that's substance abuse counseling or mental illness counseling, whether it's parenting classes, whether it's providing you with material supports. But then we are gonna ask, are you capable of parenting this child safely? And if the answer is no, we have to find someone else who can. So I think the, the problem is the stigma you know, is sort of governing, the, the, the danger of stigmatizing the adults is governing how we're treating these children. And I don't think that's how the child welfare system should be oriented. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a lot about, you know, how are ways that we could normalize things like marriage, healthy relationships? What about adoption? You know, how do we normalize this idea that young women can be empowered you know, I'm the chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, an adoption agency in New York, and open adoption where young women are the ones that actually choose uh, the families that raise their child. It's an incredible, empowering experience, and yet adoption is met with almost hostility, maybe, maybe also even in, in light of the Roe versus Wade decision. But talk about adoption as an empowering alternative to foster care more broadly. So 
what, what Ian's talking about is private adoption. So that would be a decision on the part of a mother who may be in danger of having her children taken into foster care because she is suffering from addiction or mental illness or other circumstances. Um, a decision on the part of that mother to place her child for adoption. That's different, of course, from adopting a child out of foster care, a child who's already been abused or neglected and taken into government custody. So obviously, I think most people, if they had to pick one option or the other for they, their child, would choose private adoption so that they don't have to go through the trauma of being removed, the trauma of having been abused or neglected, and the trauma of spending years in the system before finally finding an adoptive placement. I will say Americans on the whole are still very open to adoption. I mean, I don't think people sort of acknowledge the kind of miraculousness of you know, the vast majority of Americans saying that not only do they approve of adoption, they approve of interracial adoption, and that they think it's wonderful for people to take, you know, a, non, a child who is not rel related to them into their home. I mean, just the, the kind of uniqueness of that in human history, I think, is just worth noting. And it's worth sort of saying, like, no, we actually think very highly of adoption. The, you're asking sort of, what do we, you know, how do we talk to birth mothers about the possibility of adoption as an option for them? And I think it's a very tricky conversation because, as you say, I think it is obviously significantly more empowering than having the government come take your child and then decide what's best for them. Um, but also, you know, these mothers are going to, you know, are, are sort of struggling with, can I really do this or not? Um, and both sides, I think, of the abortion issue have very much moved away from adoption as an option. If you are you know, pro-choice, you believe that you know, abortion should be a, 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 you know, the solution, perhaps, um, to a mother who has an unwanted pregnancy. And if you are pro-life, you, know, you are actually there kind of cheering on the idea that even a, you know, a, a teen mother who is totally unequipped to take care of this baby, you're saying, yeah, you can do it because you don't want them to pick abortion instead. So I think uh, both sides have moved away from talking about adoption, and that's definitely had an impact. Yeah. Well, so we're going to have time for one question. I, I do want to talk to you about the uh, race issue, and also, where is this working? Is there a, is there a locality that you want to highlight? Um, I believe it's still the case that the National Association of Black Social Workers, if you were to go to their website and their position statement, they still oppose uh, interracial adoption, even today. It was a statement maybe adopted in like 19, in the 70s. 78. And it's still their official position. What is that, what is the signal of that? That they'd prefer a child to languish in foster care, even though there might be a prospective loving white parent? Just talk through, what's, what's the ideology behind that? So I would say right now, the ideology back then when it was passed was certainly, yes, we'd prefer a child remain in foster care indefinitely or even in a congregate care facility to subjecting them to the trauma of having white adoptive parents. Absolutely, that was definitely their position. I would say now, if you talk to the people who not only espouse that statement, but you know generally agree with it, and it is a lot of social workers across the racial spectrum who agree with it, and despite the fact that it's illegal to discriminate, um, when you're placing foster, foster children, um, still actually sort of engage in discriminatory behavior behind the scenes. Um, I would say now they would simply say the system is racist and you should never have removed a black child in the first place. 
Um, so it's not that we want the black child to languish in foster care. We just think, you know, you're out there engaging in what they call the family surveillance system, plucking children unnecessarily from home after home, um, you know, to engage in some kind of slavery fantasy. I mean, I'm just sort of trying to distill for you a lot of the academic literature that I'm reading now, and I'll spare you some of the gory details. But I will want to, I do want to add one other thing because um, Colorado's uh, Office of Respondent Parent Counsel which is sort of the office that provides um, parents who are involved in the child welfare system with lawyers, recently sent out um, a, a sort of whole slew of attachments to all the people that they contract with, uh, which was full of kind of critical race theory and checking your privilege and things like that. But in the documents um, was an article that questioned attachment theory specifically for black children. Now, attachment theory is something that has been observed in humans for all of human history and is observed in our closest um, uh, primate relatives, too. The idea that a young child is an, an infant to, say, three years old, is bonding with their caregiver in such a way that taking them away from that caregiver, like let's say if you had fostered that child from say the time they were born until three years old and decided to now rip them away and put them in another home, that that would have a really traumatic effect on them. This, this academic paper that was sent out to the Office of Respondent Parents Council uh, you know, contractors explained that black children are not like that. Secure attachment theory doesn't, doesn't actually apply to black children. So the level of kind of biological determinism that is going on here is pretty shocking. And I just, I want people to kind of understand that this is not just happening kind of in the university level now. This is making it into the continuing education for some of the child welfare professionals in this state and around the country. Okay, you. I want you to end. Where, where is? I want uh, you to end. No, no, no. I want you to end on a note. No, no. I don't want you to end. Um, I want you to end on a note of where is this working? Where are the the kinds of policies, interventions, engagement of nonprofit or faith-based organizations, where you're seeing positive uh, um, home shelters for? vulnerable children? So, I mean, it's working certainly here in Colorado. I mean, I think the model of a lot of the um, mega churches over the last 15 years or so has been a significant improvement over the way the government had taken to recruiting and training and supporting foster families. I mean, it's not just a picture of the kid on the nightly news, which is, you know, you could imagine not a very effective way of recruiting foster parents. Um, they're going into their congregations and saying, you know, there are this number of kids in our zip code who need homes. That's obviously a much more urgent message for people to hear. I think that they're doing much better training, including training foster families in how to handle trauma. They're training, by the way, relative and non-relative families in how to deal with kids who've experienced years of abuse and neglect, and that is making the placements that are being made much more successful because now you kind of know what you're in for, and it's not just this idealistic, oh, I'll just take in a child because, you know, my three perfect children have left the home and I can just take in another one. Um, so really just having much more realistic expectations and understanding how to deal with that behavior. And finally, the support system, which we were hearing about in the previous panel, entire churches like wrapping around foster mm -hmm. parents and providing them with all of the different kinds of support, including respite care, um, you know, giving these parents a break um, and having someone who's qualified to babysit 
um, you know, every once in a while be able to come in. So, you know, Project 127 in Colorado was one of the first organizations I visited as part of my research. I continue to think that their model is, you know, really revolutionary. Um, I went to a, a training that they had actually for uh, people to just support foster families. So I was like, it was like four hours on a Saturday morning. You had to come with a whole support system, and everybody kind of sat at their individual tables um, and talked about, you know, what foster care meant. Because prior to this, like, even if you had someone in your church who knew you were doing foster care, like, they didn't really know what that meant, and they could be like, hey, do you need anything? But they didn't really... I wouldn't say they didn't really mean it, but they didn't really know how to help. And I think just sort of providing more people with that kind of information allows the support to be more meaningful. And that model you're really seeing all over the country. So that gives me some hope. All right. Excellent. Uh, I'm not going to delay the opportunity for folks to have lunch. So please join me in thanking Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Thank you.